You are listening to A Hope in Christ with First Baptist Church of Opelousas, Louisiana. We are a biblically driven, diverse, evangelistic family of believers seeking to glorify God by calling Acadiana to a saving faith and the hope found only in Jesus Christ. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast on most major podcast providers or check us out on the web at www.fbcopelousas.org. And now, A Hope in Christ. All right, if you would, open to your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. As I was preparing the sermon for this week, looking at the passage we're going to look at today, which marks a pivotal point in Jesus's early ministry. As for the first time, we'll see him actually uh, part of confrontation because of what he's preaching. I was reminded of a famous sermon that happened not too long ago here in the South. Uh, Many of you may know a missionary named Paul Washer. Uh, If you've never listened to him, look him up. He will hurt you significantly. But years and years ago, he was speaking at a youth conference in Montgomery, Alabama, thousands of kids. Now, if you've never had the joy of going to a youth conference, you typically don't get hard preaching. You'll get a pep talk, a motivational talk, but his was a little different. And he starts preaching and he's talking about how you cannot be a Christian and yet live like the world that the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And as he's talking about this, that it doesn't matter what your verbal profession is, if your life bears no fruit, then more than likely it's a false profession. And all these kids are clapping and cheering, and he stops and he says, I don't know why you're clapping because I'm talking about you. And from that point forward, you could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium as thousands were silent. But it's the truth. Listen, preachers know that if we want to get claps, if we want to get amens, there are certain acceptable sins that it's okay to talk about. If I want to come up here and get an attaboy, I can talk about homosexuality or I can talk about abortion. And people will tell me after what an amazing sermon it was, how it was so needed, because we like to think that it is not sin within the church. We like to fool ourselves. But if you want a quiet auditorium, start talking about gossip. Start talking about slander or commitment to the church. And what you're going to find is a very different atmosphere. And we see that in Jesus this morning in this passage where to start with, you're going to see them be amazed by his teaching. They're going to say, wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter's son? And yet he's speaking so powerfully, so forcefully until the moment they realize that he's talking about them. And then they go from the joy and the amazement to wanting to literally throw him off of a cliff. But the truth is this, guys. Whether it's in the Word of God, whatever the sermon about, the sermon that offends in this sense that gives you straight, non-lying, non-softening biblical truth is the sermon that heals. I've heard it put this way, and I think it was Adrian Rogers, the wonderful preacher, who said that the Word of God cuts one of two ways. It either cuts to slay or it cuts to heal. So my prayer for you this morning, there is no way to look at this passage without being cut. But my prayer for you this morning is that when Scripture does, it's cutting to heal, 
and not cutting to slay. Now, just as a reminder where we were last week, because it kind of sets the stage for today. We looked at the beginning of chapter 4 at the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we saw the parallels between Adam's temptation in the garden and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Remember, Adam was tempted just once, and he failed immediately and completely. And then we see three curses given by God that followed, one against the serpent, against Eve, and then finally against Adam. And here at the beginning of chapter 4, we saw Jesus is tempted not just once, but three times, not in a perfect world, but in a desolate wilderness, a desert, in a fallen world filled with sin, and yet Jesus passes every temptation, and the blessings flow from that for all who would believe in him. Now, I don't know if you noticed last week, but it's also similarly a parallel between Jesus in the wilderness and Israel in the wilderness. Israel is tempted repeatedly in their 40 years in the wilderness and fail pretty well every time. They come into the promised land only by the undeserved mercy and grace of God. But Jesus, who is Israel, summed up in one man, passes every test in the wilderness so that by his obedience we are made whole and accepted in him and justified before our heavenly Father. And so there's this glorious parallel between Jesus and Adam. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, who was perfect and who lived obediently and died perfectly on our behalf. And the parallel between Israel, who fails, and Jesus, who does not. And as I said, that's important for us to remember as we look at the passage today in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30, because we have another parallel with what took place in the Old Testament. So, before we read this passage, let me put a couple of things before you this morning that you need to keep in mind in order to understand what Jesus is saying here. We're told at the beginning of this passage that the Spirit of God leads Jesus from the wilderness into Galilee. Now remember two things about Galilee as we march through this passage. The first thing is that Galilee is a part of the old northern kingdom. Now, you may or may not remember that after Solomon died, the son of David, after he dies, a gentleman comes along named Rehoboam, and because of his rashness, he wanted to become king, but not all Israel, like Solomon, David, and, and Saul before him, wanted to follow him. So there was a split there. Only the southern kingdom went with Rehoboam. The northern kingdom, where Jesus is speaking at here, what is Galilee in his time, they followed another man named Jeroboam who would be king of the northern kingdom. And you might also remember that while some of the kings of the southern kingdom followed the Lord and they were good kings, from the very beginning from Jeroboam, all the kings of the northern kingdom were evil. And the northern kingdom was characterized by idolatry and unbelief and disobedience and rebellion against God. So God's kept sending prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom to call them back to himself in repentance. But did now the, did the people of the northern kingdom repent and believe? For the most part, no. I mean, we do see a few God-honoring exceptions, but mostly no. And, and as we dig into today's passage, it's going to be important for you to remember that in the back of your mind. Now, the other thing I want you to remember as we dig into this passage 
is that Jesus is going to quote the prophet Isaiah. He's going to quote a passage in the book of Isaiah that refers to the bringing of the children of Israel out of captivity. Now, he's not talking about Exodus. This isn't when God brought them out of bondage in Egypt. He's speaking of a time many centuries after the Exodus. He's speaking of the time when God delivered Israel from the Babylonian captivity. You remember, as a punishment for their sin and disobedience, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar had carried the Israelites off into captivity, and and they stayed there for generations. And over 70 years in bondage and captivity, Isaiah's prophecy in the minds of Israel holding on to, hoping for a time when Israel is going to be brought back out of captivity and into the promised land. And Jesus is going to quote from that passage, and he applies it to the children of Israel being brought from Babylon, which had happened some 500 years before, but instead he's talking about a new release from captivity. He's using the prophecy of Isaiah about Babylon when they would be freed from their captors, But he's talking about an issue taking place during his time, about a new release from bondage, a new release from slavery that Israel so desperately needs. So we'll tie them together as we study this passage. So let's go ahead and look at God's Word together. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading in Luke chapter 4. And we'll begin reading at verse 14, Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. And the perfect word of the Lord says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he was teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city 
had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Go with me to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, as we look at your perfect, holy, healing words, Lord, we're ever mindful that we do so with a sinful heart, just as the Israelites, Lord, that your word exposes our sin. Your word exposes our need for repentance. Lord, I pray as we look at this passage today, that the words of Jesus will ring just as true for those of us in this sanctuary as those who were in that synagogue 2,000 years ago. But Lord, I pray our response would be different. Father, I pray instead of anger, we would feel repentance. Instead of rage, we would feel gladness and joy that you loved us enough that not only would you expose our sin but that the very one speaking this truth in Luke would be the means by which we could be forgiven of that sin and rebellion. Lord, we praise you and we honor you for this because we know we're not worthy. But that's what makes your grace and your love and your mercy so amazing is that we don't have to be because it's not based upon our worthiness, but upon your perfect son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you wouldn't allow to pass through my lips anything that doesn't bring you your due glory because you are worthy above all. We praise you and we honor you in the most precious of names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so think about this morning. What would we do if Jesus Christ were to come and preach at First Baptist Church of Opelousas? How would we respond? And, and I know the right answer is, well, we would be so thankful and we would be joyous and we would listen attentive. And all of that is true until he started calling out our specific pet sin. Whatever is near and dear to my heart, whatever I don't want to give up. Well, the truth is... Just as assuredly as he was in the synagogue in Galilee 2,000 years ago, back in his hometown, in the passage before us this morning, he is in First Baptist Church of Opelousas this morning. Just as he was in the synagogue, as he assembled every Sabbath day, every, every, every week, he had a word for them, and through the perfect inerrant scripture, he has a word for you and I this morning. Now, I ask you again, how, how would you have expected them to respond? I mean, if you hadn't read this passage in a while or ever, for that matter, were you shocked as Luke kind of intended you to, intended you to be? I mean, you think this is the Lord, right? He's speaking truth. But the people that had grown up around him, they had known him forever. They had heard of his deeds and his wonders and his proclamation. Were you shocked that to begin with, they were actually impressed by his speaking. They responded to to what he had to say. They said, wow, he speaks with such authority. Could this be the, the carpenter's son? So what was it then? Because they were loving it. They were amazed by his teaching. What was it that he said that caused them to be so angry that their admiration turned to rage from their desire to want to hear the truth to literally wanting to murder the Son of God? What is it that he said? What would bring about such a stark contrast and change of attitude? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, this this is a very 
rich passage. And there's so many places we could camp out. I mean, I think of verse 16, and it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and it was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. I love that verse, and I'm tempted to hang out there because here's Jesus. And and what does it say his habit is? What is his pattern? What is his practice of religion? It's to be in the house of the Lord every week. It's to be with the, the congregation to assemble with the brethren, to hear the word of the Lord read. Now, if Jesus needed that, if God in the form of a man needed that, if he needed to assemble with the brethren every week to worship his father, how much more so do you and I, his sinful followers, need the same? I'm tempted to think about verse 25. Now, your translation, it may say truly or verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. Now, now you're probably used to that language in the New Testament especially with the other three Gospels. They use it often, but Luke is different. Luke doesn't record a lot of Jesus saying truly, truly, or verily, verily. Luke, as a matter of fact, only records it six times in his Gospel. So when Luke records it, you can rest assured that Jesus is fixing to say something huge, something profound. And I'm tempted just to hang out there on those couple of verses because it is so amazing the things he says. But instead, this morning, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to three things specifically in the entirety of this passage. I want you to notice three things. And the first thing in this passage is ultimately what Jesus teaches you and I about himself. The second thing that we're going to look at that I want you to see this morning is when he talks about our sin and our need. And finally this morning when he teaches us about the good news. Because understand, I I believe that Jesus' words to these upright church-going Jewish folk in Nazareth are particularly applicable to us well-scrubbed and and well-dressed church-going folk in Opelousas, Louisiana that care a lot about looking religiously good just like these people did in the synagogue even when inside our hearts tell a different story. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's precisely that. It's precisely Jesus putting his finger on that spiritual truth that enrages the people in this synagogue. My prayer is that your response won't be the same this morning. That whereas for them it was an indictment and it cut to slay. My prayer for you this morning is, if any of this is true about you, and to some extent it's true about every one of us in the sanctuary, including the pastor, that instead it will draw you to his mercy and to his grace and repentance. So let's go ahead and walk through this together. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is what it teaches us about Jesus about who Jesus says he is. I want you to see this morning Jesus' self-identification in this passage because it is absolutely monumental. Look at what he says starting at verse 17 again. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then it says he rolls back up the scroll, he gives it to the attendant, and he sits down. He stood up to read God's word, now he sits back down. And understand why he did that, because this is what rabbis did. When they were getting ready to teach you, they sat down and you stood up. So you can feel the power of this moment. This young man, this 30-something-year-old man, shows up out of the blue at his hometown church, he reads from the passage with the huge significance for his people because this passage spoke to them. It spoke to them of their return from exile, coming back from the land of Babylon when God set them free. And yet there was something in every Jewish heart that knew it still didn't feel right. That it still didn't feel complete. So, so what is it that's not right about this? You might be asking yourself. Well, the old kingdoms of Judah and Israel were not reunited. They were still, to a certain degree, broke apart. There was no king from David's kingly line on the throne. And pagan polytheists were in charge of their country. I mean, the Romans, for crying out loud, had subjugated them. And they were just the last in a long line of empires that had held Israel in captivity. So it was hard for their hearts as they hear Jesus read this prophecy from Isaiah to feel the joy of freedom. They didn't feel that joy at all. In many ways, they still felt the bondage that Isaiah had prophesied their release from. I mean, filthy, uncircumcised Gentiles were in charge of their land. And every Jewish person was yearning for the day when everything would be set right. And so Jesus reads from this scroll a, a passage that's about everything being put right. And he sits down and is all eyes in the synagogue. As every man is staring at him, what does he say? He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, What is it he, he means by that statement? He's saying, people, you've waited so long for this. You've read this passage for hundreds of years, yet you've looked around and you see the continued captivity of you and your brethren, and now I am the man that God has sent to do this, to set you free. And he says, I will do this. I will set captives free. I will give sight to the blind. I will bring relief to the oppressed. I will bring help to the poor. He's saying, I am the one that God has anointed, the anointed one. In other words, Jesus is declaring in this synagogue, in front of the very men he grew up around, clearly and authoritatively that I am the Messiah that you've waited 600 years to see the restoration of the line of King David and the flourishing of the kingdom again, and I have come here to do it. And when he said it, it says they were astonished. I mean, they were blown away. Look again at verse 22. And he says, And all were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? So they're amazed, but some of them knew him from a child on. And they start saying, wait a minute, he's the Messiah? This is a carpenter's son. I mean, I remember when he was a kid, he played with my kids as he was growing up. We all knew Joseph. 
And this is Joseph's son, and yet he's telling us he is the anointed one of the Lord. He's the Messiah. Come on, man. Like, now take that down the road to someone else. And then even in Jesus' words, look at what he says in verse 23. He knew what they were feeling. He said in He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. So Jesus says, I know exactly what you're thinking right now. You're thinking that that we've heard you did all of these amazing works in Capernaum. Why don't you do it here? Why don't you do it in front of us? Do here what you did there. He says, I know what you're thinking, and don't miss the word here, what we heard you did in Capernaum. Not what you did, what we heard you did. Meaning, we don't really believe it. We've heard these things, we've heard the reports, we've heard the stories, we've heard the gossip, but we're just not sure. So in other words, the people of Nazareth are confessing to him that they do not believe Jesus is who he says he is or has done what he claims he has done. They're gripped with unbelief. I mean, sure, they're impressed by his speaking. They're hopeful of his message, but they don't believe who he is and what he has done. And so Jesus says, okay, you don't believe. Let me tell you a couple stories. And he tells them first of Elijah. And he says, you guys remember Elijah? He was a prophet in these parts. And it starts coming back to them now. In the northern kingdom, just remember, Elijah and Elisha ministered not down in Judah. They were here in the northern kingdom among your forefathers. And he said, when Elijah was in these parts, there were a lot of widows, and he didn't raise a single one of their sons back to life. Instead, God sent him to a pagan woman, a Gentile in Sidon of all places, and he stayed in her house and raised her boy from the dead. But he didn't do it for any of you. And he says, let me tell you another story. When Elisha was a prophet in these parts, a little later, there were all sorts of lepers here, but he didn't heal not even one of them. Instead, a pagan Gentile, a Syrian man named Naaman, came to him and said, heal me, Elisha. And God granted that Elisha would heal Naaman as he was dipped seven times in the muddy Jordan River. Now what you might be asking yourself right now What is Jesus' point? What is he reminding his hearers of in the synagogue when he tells them these stories? Think about it. Two pagans, a widow, a Syrian general, both blessed by God with miraculous signs and wonders. One had her son raised from the dead. The other healed completely and instantly from leprosy. And what's different about them and the people of Nazareth and the people of Israel around Jesus at that time? Well, it's simply this. These two pagans, these two Gentiles, they believed the prophet's words. They believed in Elijah. They believed in Elisha. They believed what God had commanded through them. And and Jesus is telling everyone in this synagogue, you know, you people here in Galilee, you really haven't learned much in the last 800 years. 
I mean, you're just like your forebears before you. You don't believe. God has sent his anointed one to you, and my word is not enough. You want to see a miracle. You don't even think that, that I've done the miracles that I've done in other parts of the land. And he says, so guess what? God's going to do to you just like he did to them. He's not going to give you a miracle. Listen, I think on top of the 800, we can say that many of us haven't learned a whole lot in the last 2,000 years since then. Because to this day, people do not believe the word of God. They seek additional revelation. They seek miracles and signs and wonders because they do not have faith in the word of God. Just as standing in that synagogue in Galilee, in northern Israel, 2,000 years ago, the men standing there didn't as well. And truthfully, whether we admit it to ourselves or not, whether we realize that's what's taking place or not, the need for more revelation, the need for more miracles is because we believe the word of God isn't sufficient to diagnose the condition of man, much less to reveal how he is healed. I mean, think about it. We have 210, 220 people in the room this morning, if we were to put out that we're going to have a signs and wonders revival at First Baptist Church of Opelousas, we're going to have a healing service, our deacons and ushers would need to bring in extra chairs to hold the people. Yet we say, we're just going to teach the Word of God. That the Word of God is all we need, not only to diagnose the condition of man, but to heal man as it reveals the only means of salvation, Jesus Christ, and look around you. Not even all our brothers and sisters are here this morning. We have the same spiritual problem that they had standing there 2,000 years ago on that Saturday morning in Galilee. And yet he says the same thing to you and I this morning. If my word isn't enough, if my word isn't enough to convict you of sin, to draw you to the cross of Jesus Christ, to help you grow in sanctification, to help you conform to the image of Jesus Christ, then I will give you nothing else. It's all or nothing when we talk about the word of God and its authority. And it's work in the life of a believer. He says to them, there will be no miracles done here in Nazareth because you've got hard hearts. He says, you're laden with your sin. You don't believe my words. And it's with those words that this happy homecoming turns into a mob lynching. I mean, they literally, their plan is to take him to the edge of town and throw him off a cliff. Now understand, in Galilee, this was built on a hillside. And on the very outskirts of town, there were these pretty steep cliffs. And they decided amongst themselves that they were going to throw him over and that they were going to kill him. And why? Because when they heard the truth preached to him, when he spoke the truth, and it nicked their conscience, it nicked their heart. Instead of being victim of their sins, instead of their being drawn to the Messiah by what he uncovered in these stories about Elisha and Elisha, what did they decide to do? They decided to protect themselves. 
They refuse to admit what their hearts were really like. They're not going to grapple with their unbelief. They're not going to repent of their sins. They're not going to allow the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to show them what they're really like. No, they're just going to get rid of the problem altogether. And they decide that the problem is not their sin. The problem is Jesus Christ. They're not going to have anyone, including the Messiah, speak truth into their lives. And my friends... Maybe we wouldn't grab Jesus today. Maybe we wouldn't take him to the outskirts of town and, and try to kill him if he were to preach here at First Baptist Church of Opelousas. But, but I assure you, if Jesus is meddling in our heart and showing you your sin and you reject his conviction, you are no different than the crowd 2,000 years ago who yelled, kill him, murder him, and understand even though spoken 2,000 years ago in a land far from Acadiana, his words ring true for you and I this morning, just like it did so long ago and so far away. You see, Jesus says he's, he's come to proclaim good news to the poor. So that must mean there are some poor that need good news here this morning. He says he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. That must mean that there are some people here this morning that are captive that need liberation. He says he's come to preach and give sight to the blind. That must mean that there are some good church-going folk that are spiritually blind sitting here this morning. He says he's come to give liberty to those who are oppressed. That means this morning, sitting in this room, there are some fine, upstanding people, possibly members of First Baptist Church of Opelousas, who were under the oppressive bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they need to be set free this morning. It means that there are a lot of people even sitting under the sound of my voice right now, that are working really hard right now to convince themselves that they are free spiritually when the truth is they're not. But they've become so committed to acting as if they're free that when they're told they're not, that it enrages them. That they would rather see blood shed than admit where they truthfully are spiritually. It's what happened to Jesus. And for 2,000 years, the story has been the same. When the truth of God is preached, when the full counsel of the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, one of two things will happen. Either you will become enraged or it will draw you to the cross, but you will not remain where you are. That is a promise. And if you're sitting under preaching that week after week after week after week neither convicts you, neither glorifies God, doesn't draw you to the cross, I don't care what church it is, including this one, you run from that. Because you cannot sit under the full counsel of the gospel of Jesus Christ and remain unchanged for the better or for the worse. Now for the good news. Jesus said he has come as the anointed one of the Lord who proclaims the good news to people who were sinners like this, like you and I, the blind, the poor, the oppressed, the captive, the sinful. But truthfully, until we admit who we are, until we admit our need for freedom, for liberation, for salvation, we play this game of denial. We play this game of blame shifting. 
Or if we play the game, and, and we aren't plagued with this, brothers and sisters, if we play the game of appearances, then we miss the gracious hand of Jesus reaching out to us with the good news. And I think of all, that's probably the game we play the most because we're more concerned what Bill and Sally to the left and right of us think than what our Lord thinks. And we think if we can spit shine our personality and our sin, if we can learn how to lie and say, I'm doing wonderful, brother. I'm doing great, sister. I'm so blessed this week and just lie about what we're really struggling in that somehow you've heard the old saying that if you tell yourself a lie long enough, it becomes truth that somehow that will be true for you and I. And yet here's Jesus Christ this morning saying, absolutely not. You're running from the very freedom that I'm trying to give you. And you say, Brother Joel, I hear what you're saying this morning. I mean, everybody around me, we're about appearances. We're about looking better than we are. And there's no way that I'm going to own up to the deep, deep sins of my heart. I'm not going to face that embarrassment. I'm not going to come forward this morning and worry about people behind me whispering, oh, I know why he's come up. I know for sure why she's come up. And if that's you this morning, I want you to understand something. You're cutting yourself off from this free offer of grace given through the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what true freedom is? Take off the shame. Take off the burden of being more worried about your sin and your issues being found out than you are about getting it released. Because can I be honest with you? That brother or that sister to your left and right that you're so worried about right now, what will they think? I assure you, they have their own sin right now. They have their own imperfection. They have their own rebellion that likewise they're struggling with right now to let it go. Folks, you want to see a healthy church? You want to see a church that will shine a light so bright in the community it's in that Jesus Christ will be glorified for generations? Let a church start being honest with one another about their struggles. Let a church find freedom and a congregation feel the freedom to come in and say, Brother, I'm struggling. I need prayer. Sister, it's been a horrible week. I have failed so often. You want to see a church that glorifies Jesus Christ. Let that become the heart of First Baptist Church of Opelousas, Louisiana. And we will set this community on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here this morning, if you're sitting there and you're afraid to let it go, you're a church goer, but you're abusing your spouse. You're a churchgoer this morning, but alcohol or, or prescription drugs or illegal drugs are wrecking your world. You're a churchgoer this morning. You're here, but resentment and bitterness or gossip and slander and pain is taking over your heart. You're a churchgoer this morning, but you're eat up right now with a sin that only you and the Lord are aware of. But God bless you. You're keeping up appearances this morning. You're a churchgoer and you're having an affair. You're a churchgoer this morning and you're worshiping at the altar of money 
or ambition or pleasure or a thousand other things and you're keeping up appearances because that's what we do. But Jesus has showed up this morning in church at First Baptist Church of Opelousas and he has said to you, just as he did 2,000 years ago, I came not so that people could continue to cover over and lie about their sin, continue to try to look good. I came to deal with those sins and I came with the good news of freedom from that oppression, from that captivity. And I can tell you some even better news. It says my gospel isn't just straighten up and fly right. My news is not be perfect and, and never sin again. My news is not here are nine things that you need to do to get yourself right with God. My news is not do something on your own about it. My news is I'm here to do something about where you are right now. Have you ever seen, and I'm going to speak to every mom in this room, when you had little ones and you get them a new outfit, maybe it's Easter, Easter's coming up, so you force your son to wear the pastel colors that he hates and dad does too. Be honest, we, we hate when you're in the baby blue or the pink. or the, We like manly colors, but, but inevitably you dress them up Right? You get them ready first in the morning. They got the new little shirt, the new little pants. And what do you do? Mom, you threaten their life. You say, now, I've got to go get ready. Sit right here. Do not get dirty, right? You go out of the room, what's the first thing they're going to do? We all know. Maybe they decide they want a little chocolate milk. So they go to the kitchen. They get the chocolate syrup out. One squirt in the cup. One squirt likely down the front of my shirt. They get it mixed together. They're going to take a sip. What happens? Half of it goes down the front of their shirt. So inevitably, rather than just owning up and running to mom and dad and saying, help, no, they're going to fix it themselves. So they grab a rag, maybe dampen it, and they start wiping. And all they're doing is making it worse, spreading that stain. That chocolate stain just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and when mom finally walks into the room 10 minutes later, I'm not going to say from the pulpit what you tell them. <laughs> All right, now you're laughing. I'm going to have a Paul Washer moment. I'm talking about you, right? <laughs> but there's a lot of you here this morning, and while that's funny, I want you to understand something. There are people sitting in this sanctuary this morning who are attempting to do the same thing spiritually. You're trying to fix it yourself. You're trying to get yourself cleaned up. You're trying to remove the stain of sin this morning on your own, through your works, through your own ability. You're trying to ready yourself and prepare yourself to stand before the Lord. But all that is happening, despite all your vain efforts, is that stain of sin continues to grow. And if that's you this morning, sitting here, then Jesus is saying to you this morning, that kind of stain, my friend, only comes out with one thing, with my blood. And he says, here's what I'm offering you this morning. Church, go where you're abusing your wife. Because my Father wants to save you from your sin, because He wants to set His love on you, because I want to love you, that I'm going to ask my Father to treat me like you deserve to be treated. 
He says, this morning you're abusing alcohol and drugs, that I'm going to ask my father to give me what someone who takes alcohol and drugs deserves. You having an affair, then I've asked my father to treat me like an adulterer deserves to be treated. You see what Jesus is saying to you this morning, that I'm going to absorb what your sin deserved so that in my blood you were washed and made clean, that you're not to to paper over it. You're not to lie about it. You're not to pretend like that it's all good because if you have faith in me this morning, then the guilt of your sin, the stain of your sin, the punishment of your sin was liquidated in me upon the cross. And that's what he offers to you this morning. Just as he was trying to tell them in the synagogue 2,000 years ago, don't play games with your sin. Don't worry about appearances. Listen, appearances before your contemporaries are not going to matter when you stand before God. Only the blood of Jesus Christ is. So he says, you run to me because I'm here to proclaim the good news to wretched hypocrites. Wretched hypocrites who, for the first time in their lives, have realized that's who they are and that they need something more than what the lies and the shame and the hypocrisy offer, that they need freedom. And he says, I'm here with my blood to give it. But my friends, just like I said, when that truth is preached, when the full counsel of that truth is preached, more often than not, unfortunately, it ends up like the synagogue in Nazareth so long ago. Rather than running in repentance, we take this position of how dare you. You want to find out just how hated the gospel of Jesus Christ is in today's world and how we're no better than they were back then? Just confidently call sin, sin, and see what happens. See how quickly those who profess to love you, those who profess to be your friends will turn on you and they'll call you bigoted, they'll call you hateful, they'll call you narrow-minded, they'll call you misogynistic. You want to find out, even in your own life, where that problem still lies? Find in Scripture where your sin is. See how quickly, even in your own heart, the indignation and the anger will rise up. That sin nature will well up. That self-indignation of how dare they? They don't know who I am. The word of God doesn't know what I've been through in my life. And the truth is, friend, that rage you feel is because you're suppressing the truth that the Apostle Paul talks about. You know it's true. You know what the Bible has diagnosed even in your own life is true. And this morning, Jesus is saying, do not join the crowd in the synagogue. Do not. Do not stay in bondage. Do not return to Babylon. Do not return to Egypt. Do not return to the captivity. Come to the Messiah this morning and find freedom. It's offered for you this morning. Listen. My prayer for you is this. Let's be a church family that's done with appearances. Let's be a church family this morning that's willing and ready and able to admit that we're not perfect. The truth is, perfect people can't be members of First Baptist Church of Opelousas. We only accept sinners here. 
those who understand that they are being made right before the Lord doesn't come from them cleaning their own stains up. It comes through the blood of the very one that the crowd sought to kill on a Saturday 2,000 years ago for telling them what I'm telling you right now. And if you will do that, if you'll find the, the grace that you didn't even know existed, then I guarantee you he will do this. Listen to what he says. That he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. Why? Because he was going to shed his blood so that that good news would become real to them just like it's offered to you this morning. So this morning as our musicians come forward, it doesn't matter what anybody sitting around you thinks. Truthfully, it doesn't matter what the preacher thinks. So I ask you to be honest this morning with yourself. Are you still in Babylon? Is your heart still captive? Have you learned how to play the game? Have you learned how to lie to those in the church and tell them things are going great when you're struggling? Have you truly ever accepted the good news that Jesus speaks of here? And my prayer is this. If I could know who you were, if there were a little red light above you, I would come down and shake you and say, listen to me. You don't have to carry this burden. You don't have to carry this shame this morning. The one who stood here in Luke 4 in that synagogue and proclaimed freedom from sin would activate it such a short time later as he would carry his cross up the hill of Golgotha, as he would allow himself to be nailed to it by his creation, as he would take every drop of the cup of God's spiritual wrath that Isaiah prophesied, he would drink that cup dry for every man and woman who would trust in him. Have you found that freedom this morning? If not, it's not complicated. We like to make it sound way more complicated than it is. Romans is clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, notice it says Lord. He can't be your Savior if he's not your Lord. Those two aren't divorced from one another. But if you confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then he will save you. That's what's offered to you this morning. That freedom, that relationship, the removing of that burden and that shame, it's all before you this morning what's keeping you from accepting that precious gift. I'll be down front if you would like someone to pray with you. Go with me to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for listening to A Hope in Christ with First Baptist Church of Opelousas. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast on most major podcast providers. Or check us out on the web at www.fbcopelousas.org. First Baptist Church of Opelousas, one faith, one hope, one family.